0: Let's pray together. Our gracious Master and our God, would you assist us all to proclaim, to spread through all the earth the honors of thy name. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in that precious name, Amen. Sometime back in the 1980s, you know, around when the ark was being built, uh, there was a series of advertisements on TV in Britain that were selling a particular brand of ice cream, and uh, they developed a successful tagline that went along with those commercials, which was... Naughty but nice. If I had to describe one of the greatest problems facing Christians today, it is that we think sin is naughty but nice. The Bible, on the other hand, thinks of sin as a tumor that must be cut out by radical surgery. Listen then, my friends, to how Paul describes the scalpel in Romans 6, verses 5 to 7. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is what I believe uh, Paul is teaching us. The foundation of all healthy holiness is to be shaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The foundation of all healthy holiness is to be shaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning what uh, we're going to do is I'm going to first put these verses into their context in Paul's letter to the Romans as we come back off Easter just to remind us of that context. Then I'm going to answer the tricky questions that these verses raise in the mind of the attentive reader, and then conclude with some application questions for all of us. So, here here we go. So, Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest letter ever penned by mortal man under the inspiration of God. In its pages there is a passionate, clear proclamation of the divine plan of God to bring to all, all nations to the obedience of faith. And Paul is writing this extraordinarily brilliant work to the Romans now because he hopes soon to visit them in person, and he's sending them a foretaste of his preaching to prepare for his arrival. And as he writes, Paul answers various common misunderstandings that people at the time had about this new emerging movement called Christianity. He was also preparing the Roman church to be a standing base for him to take the gospel of God onwards to the next evangelistic frontier of Spain, Paul hoped, after he had visited the Romans. Now, at this point in his masterful letter, Paul has established two great truths. First, all people, Jew and Gentile, are alike sinful and under God's wrath. Second, All people may, through faith in Jesus, be declared righteous by God's grace. These two great truths are twin pillars in the mansion of biblical teaching. Unless we realize that we truly need saving, that we are sinful, we will not realize we must humbly ask God to save us, trust Him to be declared righteous. And now Paul is establishing a third great biblical pillar truth, namely that for all those who trust in Christ, their relationship to God is established and and secure, that God will persevere with them as they persevere with Him. Paul is teaching the Roman Christians that because they are justified by faith, they can be assured that nothing can separate them from the love of God. And having begun loudly to celebrate this triumphant assurance, Paul realizes that there are objections to his teaching that he must answer. The first objection to it he counters in chapter 6 of his letter to the Romans, and the second objection in chapter 7 of Romans, returning to his great celebration of assurance in chapter 8. The objection of chapter 6 is that if a Christian's relationship to God is assured, why then not go out and sin as much as we like? And the objection in chapter 7 is that if the law of God does not save us, then what was the purpose of God giving the law at all? The objection of chapter 6, Paul defeats by describing the Christian's positional union with Christ. A Christian is united with Christ in death and also united with him in resurrection. So now a Christian has glorious power to live in newness of life. A Christian is an emblem of the glory of God. However, union with Christ is a difficult idea to grasp as well as to see how it makes any real practical difference to holy living on a daily basis. And so, from verses 5 to 11, Paul explains what it means to be united with Christ in his death, verses 5 to 7, and his life, verses 8 to 10, concluding in verse 11 that because of this union with Christ, we also must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, to lead on then to his practical instructions about holiness in verses 12 to 14. The message of verses 5 to 7 is fairly obvious. Those united with Christ in his death are set free from sin. However, what precisely Paul means by that message is not always rightly understood, as well as how it makes any difference to practical wholeness. So then, you and I, we must address five tricky questions raised by the text in front of us. To begin with, what does it mean in verse 5 that we have been united with Him in a death like His? In what sense is our death with Christ like His? The word in Greek translated like His in the first half of verse 5 can refer to an image or copy, but also a form. One renowned evangelical scholar concludes then that here the word most likely refers to a form. And therefore Paul means that our death with Christ is conformed to his death. So when we become a Christian, we die in a similar way to how Christ died because our death takes on the the form or shape or pattern of Christ's death. Perhaps Paul is reflecting Jesus' teaching that uh, his disciples are to take up their cross and follow him. To be a Christian is to accept Jesus as our Lord and Master, to have a new Lord and a new Master. We die to running our lives our own way. The self-orientated self, the self that wants to have things our way and live life our way must die for us to even begin to be a disciple. And the life of discipleship is a constant, offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul will say in Romans 12. You see, humans tend to think in patterns or by analogies. Uh, Life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, That paper was a home run. His sales presentation was a slam dunk. And Paul is saying that the right analogy for becoming and being a Christian is death, the form of the cross. It is also more than an analogy. A Christian is someone who has trustingly submitted to God this faith that Paul in Romans calls the obedience of faith. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. But the Christian way is not just a death, it is also a resurrection. As Paul says next, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now the question raised by this statement is why does Paul now use the future with regard to the resurrection? For in the previous verse, Paul proclaimed our resurrection as part of a present experience of coming back to life in Jesus. We have God's Spirit and are born again or regenerated and therefore we may live a new life and walk in newness of life now. However, in this verse, Paul says, we shall, a future tense. Is this a true future relating to the physical resurrection from the dead, that all followers of Jesus will experience in the new heaven and the new earth, or is this an imperative future, meaning that uh, Paul is emphasizing that our regeneration in Christ is certain and definite well, later in verse 8, Paul is clearly referring to the physical resurrection from the dead. But in verse 4, Paul was referring to our regeneration in Christ. And so it's hard to choose between the two options, true future or imperative. But in my view, it is difficult to choose precisely because in Paul's way of thinking, we who are raised with Christ will be raised with Christ. And so the two are part of one whole new reality. And the answer then, it seems to me, is whether this is referencing the future resurrection or our present regeneration is then yes. Paul is including both in his view of what it means to be a Christian And so now as his discussion is progressing, he's shifting gears from the reality of regeneration from spiritual death to the certain confidence we can have because of that regeneration of our final resurrection from physical death. Perhaps Paul is reflecting Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus that we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven regeneration relocates the Christian in a new kingdom. And therefore, the Christian's final resurrection is guaranteed. Now, we'll pick up more of this resurrection emphasis when we study verses 8 to 11 next week, but we should pause and reflect, I think, on Paul's careful, balanced description of the Christian life. He he avoids triumphalism. He preaches dying on the cross as essential to authentic Christian discipleship, yet also he avoids defeatism. He preaches the resurrection as likewise essential to empowered Christian discipleship. Well, the next question we must answer is what Paul means in verse 6 when he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. What is this old self? is Paul here talking about what is sometimes uh, referred to as the anthropological makeup of a Christian. That is, while a Christian has God's Spirit and is regenerated, there still remains the old man in a Christian. And so they retain a liability to fall into sin, even as a Christian. Well, certainly Christians can still sin and must therefore actively fight temptation by moral discipline and diligent pursuits of a vital relationship with God and Bible study and prayer and community with the church. But in context here, Paul is likely referring not to a Christian's anthropological physics, but to their positional Relocation. You see, the human race, Paul has taught, is naturally under the headship of Adam. Christ is a new head of a new people who are joined to him now through faith. And so the old self, our position in Adam, is relocated to a, a new self, our position in Christ. This happened through, he says, being crucified with him, emphasizing the the death to self that union with Christ requires by naming this feared, cruciform instrument of lethal torture. So we listen to Paul. It begins to become clear that uh, in his teaching, uh, practical Christian holiness derives first from an adequate definition Of what it truly means to be a Christian. A Christian is not merely someone who holds to particular propositional statements about God. Not only someone who associates themselves by birth with a Christian country. Not just someone who is entertained by Christian media or speaking. A Christian is a crucified one. Perhaps Paul is thinking of Jesus teaching about his followers as branches in a new vine cut off from the old man and organically grafted into the new, into Christ. And so John Stott put it like this, What was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. Two more questions must be addressed that are raised by the text in front of us. What does Paul mean by the body of sin in verse 6? And then at the end of verse 7, that the one who has died has been set free from sin. One well-known evangelical scholar says the particular word body here means the whole person as he or she relates to the world around them. So, Paul is not implying that the physical body is bad and the soul is good. That idea came from Greek philosophy, which influenced some parts of the early Christian movement, particularly a a heretical sect known as uh, the Gnostics. But Paul is not thinking in terms of a split between body and soul with one bad and the other good, but of a split between the whole person who is in Adam and the whole person who is in Christ, one the body of sin and the other the body of Christ. And so Jesus' image of the vine and branches, that those in Christ have have moved out of the body of sin, are now in the body of Christ. But then this would immediately make the attentive reader wonder why then it is that Christians can still on occasion sin. And so Paul next says in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. But what does he mean by set free from sin? The word translated set free is in Greek, has been justified. Some think then that this word means what justification usually means in Romans, which is the declaration of God's righteousness received through faith in Christ. Others think it means being released from sin's power or influence. Still others think that Paul is rounding off this part of his teaching by quoting a um, a maxim or a proverbial saying that might have been familiar to his readers as a sort of final hook in their mind. Once again, it's hard to choose between these these good options. I I think Paul is using the word here in its normal sense because it answers the question the previous verse would raise in that attentive reader, namely, if the body of sin has been brought to nothing, then why can Christians still sin? And Paul clarifies again that he is discussing our justification, our status, our standing, our position in Christ. Let us then summarize what we have learned from addressing the questions that are raised uh, by these uh, verses. First, to be united with him in a death like his means that a Christian disciple must take up his cross and follow Jesus Because the cross is the form of Christ to which a Christian must be conformed. Second, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his means that our regeneration from spiritual death will certainly lead to a whole new physical resurrection from the dead. Third, the old self that was crucified with Christ is the whole pre-conversion person that a Christian was before following Jesus. Fourth, the body of sin is that same whole pre-conversion person particularly as it relates to the world around. Fifth, to be set free from sin is to be declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus. And all this, of course, is preparing the way for Paul's instruction based upon this teaching, verse 11, that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so I think this passage is saying this, that the foundation of all healthy holiness is to be shaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well then I have uh, two application questions for us to consider. Uh, In the light of uh, this passage, as we rise first thing in the morning, as we go to school, as we pray in our devotional times in small groups or adult communities, here they are first. Have you been shaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? A Christian is a crucified one. Are you a Christian? Have you submitted your life radically to Christ? Have you determined that you will live your life for him, not for yourself? There is no other way to heaven but through the cross-shaped door of a crucifixion. The choice is simple. Death to self and life in Christ or live for self and death under the eternal wrath of God. Could it be that the reason why you cannot break sin's power is because you have never been crucified with Christ in the first place? One successful professional man who had grown up as a Christian told me how his life was falling apart. Sometime later, he realized he was not actually a Christian. A few months afterwards he surrendered to Christ, and now his life is back in order with the Maker's instructions under Christ as his Master. So let me ask again, have you been shaped in the form of the death and resurrection Of Jesus Christ. You see, the the gracious promises of God are sweetly available for you to nourish your soul upon. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light and my burden is easy. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I have come to offer you life a life to the full choose this day whom you will serve Well the second question for application is the following Do you need to be reshaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, becoming a Christian is not a one-time event. It is an entrance into a new pattern of life. Now we do not just go to church. We, the church, are the body of Christ that gives of our time and talent and treasure. The cross is not a, a mode of fashion, it's the modus operandum of our lives. The cross is the template of Christian holiness and the key to Christian Holiness. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that in due course he might lift us up. We are to consider others as better than ourselves. Blessed are the meek, for they shall see God. The holy man rediscovers every day that dying to himself for Christ's sake is the surest path to joy as well as glory. The symbol of a dictator is a fist. The symbol of a celebrity is the limelight. The symbol of religion is a rule book. The shape of a Christian is the cross. One student I knew was hanging around the fringes of church until he found strength to fight for holiness each day through an active deliberate dying to self and now he is a Christian leader serving with vigor and spiritual power. A holy man or woman must with spiritual violence reshape their self in the form of the cross. And only then, as uh, John Owen put it, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life resurrects. You must put to death the selfish self. Every single morning, noon, and night in order to have godly joy, power, and strength. Perhaps you are struggling to break some sinful habit simply because in that area of your life, frankly, you still want to do it your way. I did it my way is not the song of a holy Christian. I will do it his way is the first step to renewing wholeness in your life. For the foundation of all healthy wholeness is to be shaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. First, let's uh, have a moment of quiet to ask ourselves in the... um, secret cathedral of our own hearts, those two questions. Have you been shaped at all, truly and really radically in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is he truly your master? Have you actually died to self that you might live for him? Choice is clear death to self, life in Christ, live for self, death and judgment forever. Choose this day whom you will serve. And then that other question, do you need to be reshaped in the form of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is there some area of sinful habit that you share with others as a a struggle? But truly and honestly, you just want to do it your way. Would you ask God, by His Holy Spirit, to give you power to do it His way? That is the way of joy, the path to glory. Would you own Jesus again as your Lord? Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray these things, trusting in your sovereign power, and in your name, and for your glory alone. Amen.